this is a guy that was really operating, you know, as far as he was concerned, out of the range of the, the authorities who really wanted him. And I think overnight, Cab changed that and really scared these guys out of the country. Like somebody had a glimpse of this suitcase that was apparently stuffed full of, of sterling. You know, he was a man about town. He was donating to charities. You know, he was life and soul of the party, so long as he stayed on the right side of his temper. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. For years, Flash Johnny Morrissey has been splashing his cash on the Costa del Crime, where his luxury villa is a monument to the Roman Emperor Nero. Larger-than-life Morrissey thought he was untouchable, but now that he's been named as the Kinahan Mafia's Costa Enforcer and sanctioned for money laundering, the vodka boss has been running for cover. Balding Morrissey is no newcomer to the underworld scene, and he's run away before, including from a fishing village in rural Ireland, where he tried to land shipments of cocaine on a Cork coastline. Today, I'm talking with Sunday World journalist Eamon Dillon on the incredible life and crimes of the Kinahan crony, who Irish neighbours dubbed Johnny Cash. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. While Johnny Morrissey's background is a little bit murky and the exact details of his um, rise into organised crime and exactly what he was doing in England uh, before we get a good read on him, we do know he was an extremely violent man, Eamon, and, and your information is that he's been linked to a phenomenal amount of murders. Yeah, I, I think the Irish authorities were quite surprised when they you know, contacted Interpol and presumably the UK police at the time. Uh, and it came back that his reputation wasn't that of, you know, an armed robber, which was seen as the kind of the pinnacle of, of sort of the, the criminal underworld at the time, because, you know, he had this, he had this outgoing, charming persona. Um, he had plenty of money. And he was living a nice lifestyle and put up a nice front. So they were quite surprised when it came back that his reputation was one of that of an assassin. And I think, at, you know, at that time during the 80s and in, into the early 90s, it had been a particularly murderous time in the British gangland. And it was it, like it wasn't a suggestion. It, it was actually it was police information that that said that he was implicated in, you know, as far as they were concerned, in, in something like 38 separate murders, which is an incredible amount. Like he, he was he was a particularly violent man. And, and it's easy to forget that now when, you know, when we've read some of the more recent stuff, like, you know, the story you did there um, about two years ago as a, a drinks ambassador and he's full of bonhomie and charm and hanging out with celebrities and models on the Costa del Sol. But he, he's a gangland thug and he, he you know, he, he was a genuinely terrifying person. And there was flashes of that apparently while he was in Cork in the 90s, people who crossed him or, you know, who ended up on, on the wrong side. You know, they ended up, you know, getting hurt. Uh, he, he was never charged with any crime here, it should be said. It's like, you know, and he fled once the Criminal Assets Bureau, which were, were very much fledgling at the time, he, he he fled pretty much straight away. I suppose that career as an assassin, it's not, it's unlike kind of just generally being violent because if you're caught, you're gone, you're put away for life, aren't you? So, you know, if you, if you, it's either kind of like, Keep keep going forward in it, not getting caught, or if you're caught, your your career is ended completely. Um, 
But just talk to me about the mid-90s when he rattles up here in Ireland, Johnny Morrissey, and there was a few other kind of very significant figures that were also looking on Ireland as a place to live. We'd no criminal assets bureau at the time, and maybe being an island and slightly outside Europe, it was seen as a bolt hole. Yeah, where we're English-speaking, um, you know, a little bit of money went a long way in the west of Ireland. You could buy yourself a very comfortable home, you know, enjoy enjoy a reasonably nice lifestyle, I suppose, if you could put up with the rain. So that was the only advantage I guess Spain had, but it was probably also close to your market and your own criminal contacts. You know, you had the free travel area between the UK and Ireland. So it was easy to move back and forth without going through ID checks. Uh, and Ireland was frankly seen as a soft touch. I mean, compared to the, the pressure, I guess, that the you know British police were putting on, on their criminals at the time, there was nothing like it in Ireland. And, you know, like some of the guys, like, I mean, Mickey Green was one that the Sunday World wrote about in the past. I mean, he was, a you know, a, another brash sort of English gangland figure who was, you know, rocking up to Irish, you know, Dublin nightclubs, popping the champagne. There, there was another um, fairly major Dutch uh, drug dealer as well, whose name escapes me for the minute, like, you know, who, who was based in Ireland. And, and there were there was quite a number of them at the time. You know, they pretty they pretty much thought that this is this is kind of like an offshore tax haven for gangsters to some extent, where they could, you know, enjoy their ill-gotten gains and not be too far away from, you know, the, their area of operations, whether it was, you know, the UK or or further afield. You know, it was an easy place to get in and out of, and you were basically unmolested. I mean, you know, the like our, our I guess our police were were pretty much. Uh, you know, tied up with, you know, the, the the provisional IRA and the INLA and all, you know, the terrorist activity, you know, going on on the island of Ireland at the time. So there certainly wouldn't have been the resources for these foreign criminals. So long as they weren't committing crime in Ireland, there probably would have been a natural tendency to, to turn a blind eye to them. But we know now that that very much changed in, in 96, 97 after Veronica Guerin was murdered. Um, uh, and you know these guys were the low-hanging fruit. They, I mean, and they were big, juicy lumps of fruit for the for the fledgling cab to mm. get hold of. I mean, there was uh, like in Morrissey's case, it was something like five hundred, um, you know, five hundred punts worth of of property seized and one hundred and thirty thousand cash. I mean, when they when they searched properties that were that they believed were linked to him, they also found uh, I think a half kilo cocaine, which was pretty much unheard of, like in Ireland at that time you know, as well as a handgun. He also, it, it kind of gave an impression like th- this is a guy that was really operating, you know, as far as he was concerned, out of the range of the, the authorities who really wanted him. And I think overnight, Cab changed that and really scared these guys out of the country. Mm. Interesting when Morrissey is moving into Ireland and he has deep and they go way back links with uh, another friend of ours, George the Penguin Mitchell, who would have been heading out of Ireland at the same time as Morrissey was coming in. Mitchell, I think, saw the writing on the wall. There was talk that he was under threat from some paramilitary groups, clearly not paying his his uh, tides. But he headed to Amsterdam, but of course had very strong links in the UK and remains with those links. Um, in Manchester and in Liverpool, and perhaps that's where the two paths of Morrissey and the Penguin met. But Morrissey comes to Ireland. He sets up shop in Kinsale in County Cork. And uh, what's his reputation down there? Pretty soon he got a reputation for a guy who had plenty of cash, and it was cash. Like somebody had a glimpse of this suitcase that was apparently stuffed full of, of sterling. 
they spent an estimated six hundred thousand pounds on refurbishing this this pub that he turned into a you know a, quite the venue. It's a restaurant and nightclub, and he named it after his his Swedish girlfriend at the time. Uh, and you know he was known as Johnny Cash, and another nickname for him was Sterling Moss because a lot of the cash he was paying for wasn't Sterling. But of course, he made the fatal mistake of drawing attention to himself, not necessarily because he was flashing the cash, but because he was actually bringing in English guys to do all the refurb work. So. I think the local builders and you know local tradespeople and suppliers were a little put out that they weren't getting to, to get a slice of any of this. Or maybe in fairness to them, some of them didn't want to go near him. They could see through the facade. But like, you know, he was a man about town. He was donating to charities. You know, he was a regular in a number of bars. You know, he was life and soul of the party, so long as he stayed on the right side of his temper. And, and you know, as far as anyone's concerned, this this guy was a legit, you know, on the face of it, he would seem to be a legitimate businessman. I guess these days we'd ask more, a lot more questions about, you know, the source of someone's wealth. You certainly don't, um, you don't get to carry around a suitcase of, of money without pretty much immediately attracting attention from customs or, or the guards. And in hindsight, when we look back on it and the idea that he would go to Cork, because, you know, a lot of these guys will will pitch up probably more likely in Dublin, where most of the activity is happening. But at that time in Cork, there was a group of criminals that together were known as the Cork Mafia. And they were looking at that Cork coastline as a place to land drugs into Europe. And probably, most likely, while there's no convictions or there was never any court cases, but the Penguin was the guy overseeing that. He was always very uh, entrepreneurial with his... um, his moves into the into the drug business. But it is suspected that Johnny Cash, Johnny Morrissey, whatever we'll call him, uh, that he was trying to organise those shipments into the Irish coastline. He's suspected of being involved with a Russian gang at that time. And, and basically they were organising cocaine shipments in, in, in sealed you know, units of some kind and they were being dropped offshore. Uh, and basically, Johnny Morrissey was going to collect them. Uh, like when, when the Criminal Assets Bureau raided, they found commercial diving equipment. Now, this isn't the normal sub gear. This is using a nitrous oxide mix. So this is this is used only by, you know, highly trained divers. It's, it's you know, it's it's not, it's not for amateurs. It's, it's, it's something quite dangerous. It's where you can get the bends and all this. It can very easily turn fatal. Um, so he had this equipment. So he, he also had an ocean-going uh, a rigid dinghy. So, you know, it was a you know, pretty quick boat. And, you know, the only people who have that kind of equipment at the time would be, you know, commercial diving operations, um, you know, navies, you know, to, to some extent. Um, and it certainly, you know, it, it, it wasn't really the pleasure boat type of thing. And by all accounts, this, the, the theory was, was that um, all this Cartier jewellery that the Criminal Assets Bureau had seized from him um, during the raids, he was actually out of the country at the time when they raided. And this was used then to pay off the Russian gangsters for the cocaine because they were just kind of coming out of perestroika. It was around that time and it was still difficult for them to get, uh, you, you, you know, Western currency and, and to buy these designer goods. So he was their, he was their jewelry shop, I guess, you know, he was bringing in all, all the bling for, for the, for the Russian mob. Uh, and when he couldn't pay, he, he, on one of his trips back to Russia then to explain whatever they, they, the, the story goes that both his arms and his legs were broken. And that was, and that was pretty much the end of his his time in Ireland. He he didn't return to Ireland. Um, you, you find a lot of these guys, they didn't really put up a fight for whatever property they had in Ireland at the time. They wrote it off as, as a loss and, and walked away from it. But it had to have hurt them. And nonetheless, Eamon, all of that was arranged and organised and orchestrated. 
in a very brief period of time, because we're talking about a movement here in the kind of the mid 90s, the establishment of the Criminal Assets Bureau was 1996 and he was targeted pre-98. Um, so, you know, you're probably talking all of that being organised and orchestrated within about a four year period. Um, it's quite extraordinary ability for somebody to be able to move into a community like Kinsale and Cork and to set all that up and, um, you know, to have that kind of system. But if we look at what we know from what the US Treasury told us and, and, and the Irish Gardaí and, and their partners told us during those sanctions, Morrissey is recently working as an enforcer for the Kinahan organisation um, and also is obviously uh, dealing in shipments directly from Colombia because his Nero Vodka company, which was sanctioned, 80% of the profits from that were going directly to Daniel Kinahan as payoff, we were told, for some shipments that were lost. So clearly, Johnny Cash stroke Marcy has been operating as that kind of gangland fixer for years. He's the guy who deals with the Colombians, deals with the Russians and, you know, does the heavy handed stuff. Yeah, I mean, look, he's around for decades. Uh, you know, I mean, mm. he, he was obviously... Uh, you know, we obviously know now, like, you know, he he was seriously, you know, he was a serious criminal in, in the 1980s. So we're now into 2022 and he's been named not only, uh, as you mentioned, as as um, as an enforcer, but 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 also as a money launderer. He, he was named as well. And, and we can see that in, you know, his ability to run companies. And there's certainly some stuff that came out just yesterday as well, which I know that we get to um, that, that. Absolutely. You know, yeah. that showed like, you know, he, he, he quite the, you know, I suppose that the ability and the nuance that he wasn't just a guy going out breaking heads. He was obviously well able to, to you know, to set, set up mm. and, and run companies. I mean, they, they were like, I, th I think with, with Nero Vodka, um, you know, which was, was pretty much signed over to Daniel Kinnan at the time. I mean, they were really trying hard mm. to make that, you know, uh, you know, a, a legitimate company. I mean, the, like the, the U S authorities you know, clearly called it out and said, it's simply a front. You know, I mean, they were they were at the point where they were. I think they had, was it the the Hamilton Academicals. They were they were nearly. A, I think they were a top flight uh, Scottish football team at the time. They think they dropped the division mm -hmm. of two sids. But I mean, they they had they had done a um, a sponsorship deal. So I mean, they were at that level where they're they're trying to kind of you know you know put their put their various names. And we've seen it in in the whole boxing arena, you know where where mm -hmm. you know kind of linked companies have tried very hard. Um, with less success, of course, in recent weeks, but they've tried very hard to make it look like they're they're legitimate business, and that you know that they're, they, you know that they're well resourced millions that they seem to have come from le legitimate means, which we obviously suspect doesn't that it comes from this this massive amount of cocaine shipping that's gone on between Europe and and South America. Let's bring it back a little bit just to where we were at there before we we move on to Johnny Morrissey and to try and keep up the. Um, you know, that timeline of events, because when the Criminal Assets Bureau was established, obviously, in 96, following the murder of Veronica Guerin, um, and very powerful entity from the minute it, it, its existence was signed into, into being. And, you know, as you say, the likes of Morrissey and other foreign known criminals who were blinging it, basically, in, in Ireland at the time. They were easy targets to go after their assets. They were pretty much going to flee the country. They probably weren't going to stay here and fight it. They had no roots here. Um, and it was a quick win for the Bureau. But when the Bureau went for him, he didn't really take it lightly. 
he got really, really annoyed. Yeah, I mean, that, that was one thing that came out in subsequent years. Um, that the legal officer at the time was Barry Galvin, who had been the state solicitor in Cork. And the information coming back then, uh, as the Criminal Assets Bureau got up and running and were targeting various criminals, was was that um, that Galvin was being seen as the root of all the troubles, and that you know it, it wasn't just it wasn't just Morrissey. Um, apparently, there were some Dublin-based criminals that were quite keen on saying, you know, we've got to have a, a you know a way of of, of stopping this. Uh, and and if you if you consider if you think about it at the time that was in the background of Veronica Guerin has been shot dead the chief science officer in the forensic Ireland you know was blown up by with a, with a car bomb and badly injured by by Martin Cahill so the idea of a criminal gang targeting you know a, an officer of the state was you know was not that outlandish it was it was considered a real possibility um, and it was Morrissey who who was very much at the centre of this push. That he, he was seen as the main instigator, um, and he was in contact with whoever trying to organise um, a hit. They were basically wanted to they wanted to kill the the, the main the main legal officer, and it, it's I, I think you know it, it's something that that Cab early on knew that it was an element that they were going to have to deal with. I mean, it's why their officers remain you know apart from the legal officer and 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 the the, the guard in charge nearly the rest all of the rest of them remain anonymous when they come to court you know it's you're not allowed to use their names all, all the people who are civilians who are part of cab whether the social you know social workers or sorry social welfare people or or mm -hmm. whether they're um you know accountancy accountants or whatever they're they're all anonymous and, and it was because of you know it was because of that so i think this all kind of fed into the the the, the early learning curve you know you know you know for, for the fledgling yeah. cab and i suppose in a way they, they were lucky that um they had a lot of quick lessons fast and they obviously had some very good individuals there as well that were able to push it through. But I mean, the, the legislation that that we brought in in Ireland within a couple of months, it was unprecedented. And, you know, there was nothing like it in a lot of other European countries, which is why our criminals and the criminals who had come here to, to you know, to escape their own police forces moved away because they knew they'd be able to protect their assets elsewhere. Whereas here, there was no chance. It, it was, you know, once there's a whiff Mm -hmm. That you have an interest in in any property, that's it. You know the, the cab can take it, and it's been it's been really effective. And it, you even see in today's papers now, there's there's talk about you know uh, adding more powers now to cab, like cutting the time from seven years to three and a half years, and you know bringing out all the names of people who've had to do a deal with cab. They're not going to get to remain anonymous the same way as the the tax revenue like issue a list of defaulters. So you know it's been a really effective um, set of legislation and. The likes of Morrissey, you know, was the first to feel it. You know, in hindsight and looking back at that story and, and the, the the story at the time and what remains is that George the Penguin Mitchell aforementioned that he was really lurking there in that whole plot that Barry Galvin had to actually get firearms training. I think one of the only civilians that has ever been issued with a firearm um, for his own protection. And, you know, when you look at what role that Johnny Morrissey had then and has continued to have, and that has been rubber stamped by the sanctions as he's been named as an enforcer, um, you know, others perhaps were directing that and maybe he wasn't that worried about the money that was going missing. Maybe he was here, you know, and there was a role and there was somebody higher up than him, higher up the chain, who was maybe hoping to threaten the, the, the establishment again. Not only had 
John Gilligan's gang threatened the the state when when Veronica Guerin was murdered, but the setup of the Criminal Assets Bureau then, that was the one time that it was, you know, vulnerable to being threatened again by organised crime. And of course, Mitchell was, Mitchell and Thomas Bomber Kavanagh, all our friends always come back. They just keep coming round and round. They were the first two targets of the Bureau. And Mitchell did fight the case, despite the fact that it was really based on a couple of houses that were pocket changed to him, considering what he was. But he, he fought just like Gilligan. It just wasn't quite as high profile. I think Bomber eventually did walk away that, you know, he, he was on a hiding to nothing that he wasn't going to win. Um, and, but, but even, I mean, I, I certainly would have said, you know, it was these, these houses were, were, were pocket changed. But someone recently mentioned to me that some of these houses actually had been converted into various flats and they actually had, he had dozens of families in these houses all paying rent. So he was actually making quite a lot of money. And I suppose it would have been to some extent legitimate income. So there was a reason why he possibly fought there. So, I mean, it did it did hurt. Um, but, I mean, I mean in, in a way, I suppose the Criminal Assets Bureau helped kind of sow a wild geese of Irish criminal um, Irish criminals abroad. They fled to, you know, France, Amsterdam or wherever, like, you know. Uh, and, and, you know, there's, there's people who insist that, you know, the Penguin is still far richer and has made more money than the Kinnahans. And But he's been, so far, he's been able to avoid the Americans. So, we'll, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's a, I think it's a case of watch this space, what's going to happen. And I mean, yeah. it's interesting that, you know, there, there's seven named individuals in the American sanctions, uh, but there's only three that have rewards on. So, I mean, that's certainly an invitation with the American style of looking for a plea bargain. I mean, that's pretty much a, like, here's your last chance, you know, I think. And it, it's, uh, it'd be interesting to see what's going to happen going forward, I think, with this, you know. I think probably these sanctions are the new wave of policing. And, you know, people have been talking for a long time about what's next after the cab. You know, not that the cab has run its course in any way, shape or form, but it can do what it can do in this country. But it can't go after the global assets of these criminals. And any of them that are becoming big are, you know, moving out of the country, moving into the continent and onwards to Dubai. And, you know, the sanctions is the is the way forward when it comes to hitting them in the pocket again. But back to Morrissey. So he he left Ireland after the pub was taken from him, the boat, the diving gear and the cocaine and whatever else they, they caught belonging to him. But uh, where does he pitch up next, do we know? Well, I mean, he, he's very, well, as we know, we've already mentioned, like he was, the, again, you know, he took up the man about town idea in, in, uh, in, in Marbella. Um, and, and certainly now, just recently, we know that, you know, in, in 2008, 2009, he was involved in setting up companies uh, in Panama and trying to set up uh, bank accounts in the British Virgin Islands. That's a, an interesting... Explain that. What was this about? Because I haven't had a chance to look at that. I know you were writing about it, so I thought I'd leave it to you to give us the expertise well, on that. Well, this time, I have to say, I was inspired entirely by the the... It, the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, and they they put out a piece with the Irish Times uh, just yesterday uh, that they had mm. they had documents from what's called the, the Panama Papers, which was all uh, these leaked. They were basically hacked documents from this firm called uh, uh, Masak uh, Fonseca, who've basically been enabled money laundering, you know, worldwide for you know powerful figures from everything from. You know, you know, the likes of uh, Vladimir Putin to various corporate heads. Uh, and of course, they've been searching through the database and, and the Kinnins are starting to turn up because of these, you know, these these names that have come out thanks to the American sanctions. 
they've been going through them. Uh, and, and of course, uh, Morrissey turned up anyway, and he was connected with a, a basically it was a, a website called the Rackbook. And the whole idea of the Rackbook was that you know you, you you pay your money, and you're able to sign up to it, and you can see then if there's any dangerous criminals uh, living in your area, which is obviously quite ironic, you know. But it's obviously based on you know. Uh, you know, people people want to know if the sex offenders living living near their house or whatever. Uh, and now, there's no suggestion that the the, the website uh, was involved in any wrongdoing, or because or, there were there are um, co-partners with it. Uh, but 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 uh, but Johnny Morrissey was was one of the co-founders. And uh, you know, the whole idea then was, I mean, according to the documents from, from the from the Panama Papers. That they were going to have something like a hundred thousand. This is when they were looking for a bank loan in Panama. They were they were going to have something like a hundred thousand people signed up in the first year. They were going to pay eighty dollars a year. So I mean that's whatever. <laughs> that's ten. It was eighty million, mm. eighty million dollars a year that would be going through. Uh, you know this website theoretically, if if if, if, if it right. worked. Um, and then there's there was applications in in these files that were found uh, from Monsaka or Mossack Fonseca. There was, there was uh, files shown that they were applying for a loan, uh, and, and to to they also wanted to open a, a bank account in the British Virgin Islands, which they were going to put the the subscriptions through that. So you're talking about you know a pretty serious kind of setup of offshore banking, uh, where you you could move money around. Obviously, money can come from one end and arrive in the British. Uh, Virgin Islands, and then come out the other end as being subscriptions to a website, not necessarily the Ratbook.com, which only lasted a year, and and by its own admission uh, had four thousand when it when it when it finished. I mean, but was Johnny Morrissey actually trying to get information for people to rat on other criminals out of that, or was it just purely money? That, I, I, that might have been that might have been a. a I suppose an added bonus that you you know is very much mm. you'd have a kind of a I mean it, it was essentially it would have been a kind of a form of a, a journalistic website a news website that focused mm. purely on on <clears throat> on offenders and where they lived recently released from prison I mean we do a bit of that ourselves in fairness so mm. uh, I'm just thinking it could work quite a good business plan actually <laughs> if you can get through uh, somebody should relaunch it <laughs> you might do well it's up for sale uh, the ratbook.com uh, now there, there's there's still like if you go if you use the Wayback Machine there's still pages of there's there's pages visible like you know where they're they're pretty much inviting people um, it's it's stuff like um, we believe you have a right to know about criminals living and operating in your area and that through awareness you can improve the safety of your family I mean just the the, the goddamn irony of this you know coming from a you know somebody absolutely up to his neck in, in gangland activity. These people would show you how to live, wouldn't they? I mean, it's just unbelievable how they dream these things yeah. up. I mean, look, I mean, they're, they're just, there's, there's no real, uh, this is a minor transgression, I guess, from their part, telling a little fib like that compared to the other stuff he's been up to. But I mean, you, you can see you can see straight away how it would be useful to have, you know, not, not saying the ratbook.com was this, but you can see how it's useful that if you had a subscription website based in a, you know, a country like the UK or Ireland, so all of a sudden you can set it up that the money you have in Ireland is going to this website, which has its bank accounts, whether it's the Isle of Man or the British Virgin Islands. And then it gets transferred to the firm that ultimately owns the website in Panama, where there you have your cash and it's now laundered. It's 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 free. It's untainted. So, I mean, it, it's a, you know, and, and if you do this a hundred times, you know, you're talking about possibly billions of dollars getting shipped through. I mean, 
if you remember, if you go back to Operation Shovel in 2010, like we both covered that at the time. And one of the things that came out, there was 31 companies that were on a list that the, the authorities were looking at the time. And they were from, I mean, you, you remind me on this, but it was, it was, it was Holland, uh, Spain, Brazil. Uh, mm. There was links to Ukrainian um, concrete manufacturers. Uh, oh, ban- Cyprus and everywhere yeah, was on it. Bananas from Brazil. Mm. I mean, you can see how mm. if, if, you, if you start buying and selling oil, or, or you know huge amounts of commodities, and you're doing it through shell companies. You can launder millions and millions in one fell swoop, and and this is what they were at, you know, 22 years ago. An Operation Shovel, uh, Eamon, just for anyone who doesn't remember, was the 2010 offensive against the criminal organisation led by the Spanish, including our own Gardaí, the UK SOCA, I think it was at the time, and other European. Uh, countries they got together and the Spanish told us the Kinahan organization had been shut down unfortunately it didn't quite work out that way but just in case anybody was forgetting what Operation Shovel was um, Morrissey has proved to be kind of uh, you know I noticed that he was the one you know he's been always on social media he sees himself as a bit of a, a, bit of a, a tech genius perhaps maybe not genius but he's he's very uh able for his Facebook site, his Twitter site, all the rest of these. Now, a lot of them have been taken down of late, but for a 64-year-old man, he's doing quite well on all that. He, of course, was the first individual to tweet, I think it was, uh, if not, it was on Instagram or something, but the book Blood, Blood Feud, clearly written on behalf of Daniel Kinahan as his uh, narrative of what happened that day in the Regency Hotel. It was a free online book for anyone who wants to read it. And it was the musings um, of this mad conspiracy involving the media, the Hutch organisation, the government and the guards all working together in order to try and have Kinahan murdered that day. Um, but yeah, he's always lurking around the background there, Johnny Morrissey, with that social media, with the likes of this company you're talking about. You know, he's a man with many hats, isn't he, for a, a, a gangland? I suppose it's because he's been around that long. Yeah, he certainly seems to have a lot of uh, kind of varying capabilities, which obviously makes him so useful to the Kinnahans. I mean, uh, you, you know, like getting involved in promoting blood feuds, you know, as you call it, you know, that's totally bizarre theory, you know, that Daniel Kinnan put out. Marks him out as an absolute loyalist to the mm. gang. Either that, he's either an absolute loyalist or he's just totally um, owned by them. Like he's either, you know, he's their chief janitor or, you know, he, mm. he's an absolute, um, you know, acolyte and, and follows them blindly to wherever, you know, he's led by the Kinnans. I mean, I, and I mean, I mean, the whole idea, if you remember at the same time, there was that, um, uh, that really slick, expensive uh, video that came out at the time that was, again, you know, espousing this, this crazy idea <clears throat> that the Regency Hotel, you know, was, was organised by the guards. That was all a part of a, you know, a deep state trying to, you know, kill Daniel Kinahan. And, and, and he got up, up, up there for a couple of months. And, and that was part of his, I suppose, idea to create, you know, a parallel narrative. So, you know, more than, you know, Vladimir Putin does it all the time, puts out 10 different narratives on the same event, that it was a, an element to try and make things a little foggy. I don't think it was meant for the, the, the Irish audience. <clears throat> it was very much mm. it was very much meant for his friends in the Middle East or, or probably in Central Asia, where he's likely to relocate at some point in the near future. Yeah, absolutely. And they, they'll see this as a as a, a legitimate um, 
either a book or movie release. Just to bring you back, considering you are our resident Guardian reader and would be recognised as probably a little bit more highbrow than the rest of us working on the Sunday world, I want to ask you something. <laughs> Eamon's shaking his head vigorously there. Um, the British Virgin Islands, which you've mentioned there, um, so the premier of them was... Uh, I'm going to read this out so I don't get anything wrong here, but uh, this was an extraordinary story. Andrew Fahey and not F-A-H-Y like the Irish version of it, F-A-H-I-E. He was arrested last week in a US Drug Enforcement Administration sting as he was preparing to board a private jet. So he's the premier of the British Virgin Islands and he's demanded his immediate release at the moment from US custody, saying he's immune from prosecution. But they want him on cocaine smuggling charges. And uh, quite an extraordinary story. And the British Virgin Islands does come in. It sort of, you know, comes in and out of a lot of the kind of uh, certainly the companies that we see surrounding the, the Kinahan organization and not just them, obviously. Um, other corrupt entities have been using the British Virgin Islands for a long time. But what exactly does it mean? And are they a territory still of the UK in some way? be honest, I'm not sure if they're part of the Commonwealth or not. Um, I, I would hazard a guess that they are if they continue to call themselves British because you have the US Virgin Islands as well. Um, yeah. But uh, look, uh, there are all these tax havens. Um, and like, I mean, year, years ago, not so long ago, it would have been the likes of Jersey and the Channel Islands and the Isle of Man. I mean, even Gibraltar, you know, were closer to home. There would have been, you know, you know the, the local dentist or solicitor who was divorcing his wife or her husband wanted to hide their money, they'd, they'd stick it all in the Isle of Man and no one would be able to, to, to find it. But I mean, you'll find now that a lot of countries have signed um, mutual agreements now with a lot of those you know, tax havens and they don't operate anymore like that or they're not as easy for them to operate that way. I mean, they were a, a, like simply a black hole. And, and that's one of the reasons why Dubai has become so popular, you know, to become a hub of illicit financial activity, you know, which again was pointed out by the Americans. It's why... The likes of of uh, you know Ed and Gassanen and and Daniel Kinnahan have, have been based there. It's simply they they can they can get away with it. I mean, it, it, like there's no way there's no deal with any of the European nations. You know, if they're trying to investigate somebody's tax affairs, it's not like they can rock up to the you know the revenue commissioners in in, in, in Abu Dhabi and say we need to see we need to see the files on uh, Eamon Dillon or Nicola Talent. Whereas they can do that within the European Union. To some, to some extent, they can do it now to some of the older tax havens. I mean, you know, some of the various places in the Bahamas now have tightened up, partly because of its American pressure as well. And, and, and you're going to see less and less. It's going to be, become more and more difficult for countries to have that kind of totally, you know, that kind of total anonymity and total black hole, you know, finance where you can put money in one end and it comes out the other you know, because I mean, you have things like I mean, it was on that um, piece you did there recently as well about you know London grad, like so many of those wealthy you know uh, Russians <clears throat> who've bought houses. They're using shell companies from the likes of you know the Cayman mm. Islands or wherever, and you know, and it's becoming it's becoming a you know a serious issue I think in London that they people don't know who owns these houses and they're not necessarily even occupied. And they've been welcomed in there, you know what I mean, in the in the same way as we know the United Arab Emirates and how the Kinahans 
settled there was because they set up these companies and once more than 50% was in the shareholding of an Emirati, they then got their residential status. But in London for years, if you spent two million, you got residential in London. That's why all the oligarchs came and all. So it's easy to kind of, you know, sniff our noses at the Emirates, but other countries closer to home and probably, you know, I don't think we're a tax haven essentially, but some would say we are for, for big corporates. You know what I mean? We're all a little bit, a little bit dirty, aren't we? I mean, there, there is, again, there's a, a certain amount of irony in this that you have the likes of Russian oligarchs or the Kinahans who, you know, are, they don't want to see rule of law in their own backyard where they're running the show, whether it's, you know, ripping off, you know, their own nation or whether it's selling drugs left, right and centre and killing people. But then they want to have a nice little bit of rule of law when it comes to keeping their money safe and being able to transfer it around and being able to sit in a, a lobby without getting shot. So, you know, they're all for rule of law when it suits them and they're very much against it, you know, when they don't. And I mean, like in terms of money laundering, I mean, I think it's called banking and I think they've been doing it for years, you know, and I mean, yeah, the, the, I mean, the, the financial hub and, you know, the, the square mile in London, you know, it's been long criticised over its ability to kind of, you know, not look too far past the shoulder of the person handing them the money. And I, there was a, an incredible report um, and I did a double take when I read this figure. I think it was in uh, after the after the collapse of the financial systems in 2010, the UN estimated that $365 billion of hot money went into the financial system. And that was basically cocaine money. That, that wow. only for that, that was the liquidity that kept the international banking system alive. Uh, so, and, and I thought someone's done a typo here. That should be million, not billion. And I looked up the, the original report and there it was. It was it. So the UN were estimating that, you know, a staggering amount of money, you know, went into the financial system. So in one sense, it's nothing new. And it's it it kind of it leaks back in, and it's gonna it'll find its way in. But it's gotta, in fairness, all you can do is try and make it harder for these guys, so that you know at least at the very least we're getting a tax cut off them, so that you know you see the likes of of recently um, was it one of the burn organized crime groups, high powered cars was used in a guard operation. You know it's a small thing, but I think it's really symbolic. I think it's fantastic, and it, the idea then that if you if you can tax some of these. Drug dealers, you might be able to put them behind bars, but if you're able to seize some of their money and use it against them, there's mm-hmm. a certain, I don't know, bit of karma, I guess, isn't it? Absolutely, or use it for good. Um, but just back to Johnny Morrissey briefly then, he has been holed up in Spain in the bosom of the Kinahan organisation after 2016 when um, when the, the, the family, the Kinahan family, moved onwards to the United Arab Emirates along with some of their closest associates, he remained in Spain, where he's clearly been in charge of the drug route into the country. So presumably that's the Moroccan cannabis and, you know, the cocaine they are more than likely landing in in um, in Belgium and the Netherlands in, in more recent times. But that's presumably, I'm, I'm kind of guessing there, but it's the cannabis coming over from Morocco and possibly heroin because I think the sanctions told us that they were interested in all those drugs. Um, he's lost some of them and as a result, he's had to pay back uh, Kinahan. Obviously, this is part of the structure of organised crime. It's never all win, win, win. Uh, whoever is last name on the piece of paper is responsible for paying for anything that's seized. Yeah, I mean, it, it, like, it doesn't sound like a, a particularly attractive uh, sort of career opportunity, <laughs> certainly, no. certainly at that level. I mean, it's wasn't the line in The Sopranos, you know, money rolls up and shit rolls down. And I mean, it, it's, 
I guess like there's some employers, I guess, are better than others. You know, like there was there was talk about, you know, how, um, you know, that the, the the American mafia in New York that, you know, they were they were murderous and they were violent. But, you, you know, you, you got to cut. And once you did your job and once you obeyed the bosses, you know, you, you, you got to have a nice car and a nice house and a couple of holidays and afford your own cocaine addiction problems or whatever you were doing. Whereas apparently working for the Albanian mafia, there's only two levels. There's everybody and there's the boss, you know, and, and so, you know, it's kind of, I don't know, it'd be like kind of, a, a, you know, a, a pretty tough kind of corporate setup. So, but it sounds like the Kinhins are opting more for the Albanian style, that there was very little, there was very little trickling down that was very much gobbled up mm. and they controlled everything. But that, that seems to fit in what we know about Daniel Kinnan and certainly Christy Kinnan Sr., that they're, they're pretty controlling. You know, and mm-hmm. they like to micromanage. And I suppose finally, what do so so Morrissey has gone to ground, uh, and nobody has set eyes on him. Uh, I think his wife is still knocking around the Marbella area, but has moved out of the house. Um, what will happen to him? Is he is he wanted now in the U.S. because he's been named by them? I, I, there's no doubt he'd be a person of interest. I mean, the fact that they didn't put a reward mm. on him suggests that they'd be more happy to talk to him initially rather than arrest him um, to see him if he can give up the Kinnahans. I mean, he'd, he'd obviously make a brilliant witness for them. Um, so, I mean, mm. that, that could be the motivation why they haven't got a price tag. What was the name of his website again? Theratbook.com. <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> so, it's it, all coming it, together it, there it, now. It, could... it might work. Uh, but look, I, I was thinking about this, and I mean, you, you know, so, so long as you're not connected directly to anything American, you're pretty much you're, you're pretty much okay. But I mean, you're obviously going to be on every 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 kind of watch list. I mean, I mean, there's no reason why Aer Lingus or you know or a European uh, airline couldn't let him on board, but it, it's illegal for an American airline to do it. So the likes of Aer Lingus mm. might decide. Well, we can do it if we want, but why take the risk? Why end up, you know, getting in trouble with the Americans because he let this guy fly? So you're going to find there's a lot of, there'd be a lot of soft sanctions. There's all of a sudden people mm. that were happy to meet him or happy to have him in their nightclub would say, look, we don't want you here because the Americans are watching you. And, you know, all of a sudden yeah. my my Visa merchants account's not going to work because you're coming in here using cash. Mm. So you, you just don't know. So people aren't going to take a risk. So there is going to be that kind of soft edge to the sanctions. I mean, there was an example of it there uh, with a Chinese company that were selling drones to both sides in, in Russia and Ukraine. Now, they're, they're small commercial drones used for civilian purposes. They're not a military company, but they've decided they're not going to sell them to either side anymore. And it's because their main business is in America and they don't want to, they don't want to kind of somehow you know, you know, hit a tripwire with the American sanctions. So I think the likes of you know, Morrissey and... You know, mm. McGovern and Ian Dixon and, and, and the other guy Clancy are going to find that, that all of a sudden, you, you know, they're going to be living in, in a world where they're going to have to have, a, you know, a pocket full of cash, which we know now is harder. It's harder and harder to do that. It's difficult to, to I, I don't think you can rock up now to Dublin Airport and pay for a, a, a ticket in cash. I think most places, most, mm. you know, so many small things, even booking a hotel room. I think mo- most people insist on you having a, a, a credit card. So that's going to become really difficult. It's going to become harder. I mean, you, you have your various apps. I mean, I'm sure you can use Revolut or whatever, and you can tap away. But it means mm. that you're going to have to start spreading things around. It's going to cost you. Yeah, and there's more traceability nowadays. There's no doubt about it. McGovern, obviously, is wanted here for murder, so he's in a different position than the others. But it'll be interesting um, to think that 
the Americans, is it 5 million each for them? So is there 15 million in total? Yeah. There's a little bit of confusion about that. No, there I, is yeah, 15 I, million I in consider, total. Yeah. I mean, I, I would certainly yeah. be making the argument. We would argue if, the if bit. I was, um, <laughs> if I had the information that led to the rest of it, I said, well, I want 5 million for this one. And, and I'll give yeah. you the next one when yeah. I get that. But look, I, I mean, it's, it's uh, another way of putting it into context is that they, they, they put up money for, um, I think, six Russian hackers at the moment, you know, involved in, in attacking Ukraine. And it's it's a lot less. So it kind of shows you it shows you the, the the level of desire that the American authorities have for the Kenyans at this stage. Like it's it's no small thing. I mean, it really was an mm. unprecedented press conference. Uh, like I was there, as was Ian, the producer. We were both there at that that day. Uh, and yeah, and you mm. had like the, the American ambassador. You had a senior member of the DEA. You had a senior member of the Treasury Department and the State Department. You had four high-ranking, you know, governmental figures from the United States you know, in City Hall saying that they want these guys who are originally just from just down the road and all over Bond Street. I mean, yeah. like, I don't think, I haven't seen anything similar anywhere in Europe. I mean, it's it's it's, no. it's a really unprecedented. So, I mean, whatever button the Kinnons have touched, whether it's the USC Guyane, that 20, you know, tons of cocaine in Philadelphia, whether that's some, that put a big target on an ambitious agent's, you know, future career, or whether their money laundering operations have strayed into some, you know, an element of of terror, terrorist financing, but whatever they've done, they've 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 hit a button and they've really put a target on their backs. Most definitely, and you and I spoke about that Guyane that was, uh, you know, boarded in Philadelphia, and there was a billion euro worth of cocaine on it, and how it got on, and all the rest of it. We spoke about that. But that was in 2019 from memory and the DEA were already there in 2017 at that wedding. So uh, it was it's more likely it was the the creation of that European super cartel and whatever went on with that, its um, tentacles into the US, into Central and South America and then back to Europe that really sort of awakened the, the US to the threat of the, the European narcos. Of course, um, Johnny but, Morrissey was at that wedding. He was one of the guests along with... Rafael Imperiale and Rido and Taghi and Enrico and the members of the super cartel, Ed and Gasson. And so, you know, it was a key moment, all right, you know. Most definitely. And look, it will, I'm sure, come out over the, the coming months and years exactly what was going on in the background at that time. Uh, it's an ever uh, unfolding story. And um, Johnny Morrissey is very much part of it. So thank you very much, Eamon. Thank you, Nicola. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.